an interesting process for me um, on a personal level. Um, uh, while I was homeless for the longest time, I did want to stop using. However, being in the situation of being in the street for almost three years, I didn't feel that I wanted to exist in any other way than finding a way to numb what was going on around me. Um, so I continued to use. Um, when I got housing through Pathways, that's when it really started to click for me. And that's where, you know, the interesting thing about Housing First for me comes into play was not having that stipulation. You're listening to Narcotica, a podcast giving you the straight dope about drugs and the people who use them. Hello, everyone, and thanks for tuning in to Narcotica. I'm Zachary Siegel, broadcasting from Chicago, Illinois. Today, we're going to be talking about a topic sparking a lot of policy discussions in communities that have been hard hit by the overdose crisis. We're talking places on the East Coast where illicit fentanyls are taking over the heroin supply. These powerful synthetic analogs of fentanyl are making an endemic problem even worse, housing and homelessness. Today, we've got Chris and Troy on the line and some special guests in the Housing First movement who we'll introduce in just a second. Troy here. You may be wondering why we're talking about housing on a show about drugs, um, but this is why covering drug policy is so important. It intersects with so many different things in society such as science, mental health, criminal justice, reproductive autonomy, and in this case, housing. Um, We're going to get into that because this connection actually does make a lot of sense. Drugs can determine whether you're eligible to receive subsidized housing. Drug use can be a way to self-medicate the trauma of having unstable housing. And there's really no downplaying the related anxiety and mental health issues from not feeling like you have a safe place to sleep at night. There's perhaps no better illustration of how, frankly, fucked up things have gotten over the years than Kensington, Philadelphia, where our very own Chris Marath has been deeply embedded in the user community. In Kensington, the overdose crisis and housing go hand in hand. Chris, you want to take it from here? Yeah, thanks, guys. It's uh, nice to be back on, and I'd like to thank Matt Tice of Pathways Housing and Saren Wilson, who's a participant in that program, for being here with me today. Kensington is no better uh, place than to demonstrate how policy, often good intention policy, can turn a, a bad problem even worse. And um, I've watched that happen over the past couple of years. And I've watched the organizers, um, dedicated people like Matt and others in the community that have stepped up to try to correct some of these wrongs and uh, mitigate some of the harms. Uh, the closure of four homeless encampments in particular this year, uh, during one of the coldest winters we've had, created a need for low-barrier emergency housing for hundreds of people displaced by these policy decisions that are often made by people who've never so much as set foot in the camps. While city workers fanned out to meet the need, and they were eager to trumpet their successes and credit where credit is due, they made some, the truth is that many people don't use city shelters because they're just not conducive to people that are active drug users. Um, For instance, there's a policy that no syringes are allowed inside. So you're almost 
it's a counterintuitive policy if you're trying to promote harm reduction and use new syringes every time to tell somebody to throw out their syringes if they want to come in. So I've watched as people have stepped up to try to meet that donut hole of people that have fallen through this um, crisis and are homeless and can't benefit from city-run uh, agencies, you know. So one of the first things that happened was we had some respite centers open uh, as these camps closed. But Pathways to Housing has been around for a decade, and they've been dealing with this population for a while. And Matt and his crew stepped in, and uh, over the past uh, 10 years in their existence, they've gone from housing 100 people, or roughly, to more than 400 now um, in single-occupancy single apartments. Um, and Matt and Sarn are here to talk about uh, what that experience has been like. And um, so thanks for being on the show, guys. Appreciate yeah. it. Thank you so much. Um, so I guess I'd start by asking you um, to tell us a little bit about the history of Pathways, um, what its original mission was, and how that mission has evolved as this crisis has evolved. Sure, yeah. So the Housing First model in itself is designed to... Um, specifically help individuals who have been on the street really the longest. Um, we're, we're trying to target people who have been out the longest and who have the most significant level of need and uh, the, the most amount of barriers because more traditional systems, the, the types of things as you had mentioned earlier, kind of have the expectation that you have to earn your housing. You have to show that you're worthy of housing. Our, our whole idea is housing is a human right, and we should be able to, to uh, start with that basic need, and everything else is going to flow from that, that point. And, uh, and so we, a lot of times when we meet somebody, they look at us with disbelief. Um, Sarn and I were talking about that a little bit as though there's no way that that could be true, but, and we don't have the expectation of the precondition that you, you must, uh, be, uh, abstinent or you have to take psych meds. You have to do all of the other major things that typically are, are necessary in order to come into housing. Let's start there. And then you tell us what we need to do to help support you in more or less your recovery from homelessness and all of the other things that come along with that. Anything else that you would say that, like, when you first came in, Sarn? Sarn, how did you get uh, in, engaged in Pathways to Housing? Yeah. Um, for myself, I, um, I originally um, was introduced through Pathways um, due to the fact that I was living homeless in the streets of Center City. And um, I learned about Pathways through outreach workers. Um, and initially... Um, I was told uh, if you're interested in getting off the street, um, we're an organization that is here to help you and offer you housing. And um, basically, at that time, that's all I was looking for immediately was uh, housing to get off the street. And um, like uh, Matt had just said, I did like look at them with disbelief because there was no requirement to be clean or um, anything other than being homeless and, and needing housing um, at that time. So that's my introduction to Pathways. I just wanted to ask one question. So, so Sarn, up until that point, were there always uh, strings attached or certain conditions and requirements you had to meet to, to get housing? My experience with that and um, that I, I also heard through others was that it was a, a, a long-term extended process to try to get housing, which 
wasn't even necessarily permanent. Um, in some cases, it was just temporary. Um, but there was usually a, a stipulation that you had to stop using um, illicit substances. Um, you needed to be in some sort of therapy if you had mental health issues. Um, and you had to prove in a, a very amount of steps that you were capable of living by yourself um, or on your own in one of their institutions. According to someone else's definition, really. According to somebody else's yeah. definition, definitely. I'd like to quickly point out that we're sitting in Sarn's uh, apartment right now. Thank you for the hospitality. And I'm sitting in a spotlessly clean living room uh, with a piano in one corner, a TV on in front of us, a beautiful fish tank. Um, and I have to say it's cleaner than I left my place today. <laughs> um, so just want to get that message in there. Yeah, Chris, I don't know. I don't know if per government standards, you uh, are allowed to be housed based on the conditions you live in, sir. <laughs> you know, it's, it's true, though. Like, um, I don't know if we all would qualify to, to fit the expectations a lot of times to prove that we need to um, that we're allowed to have housing according to most of the other uh, program expectations or even coming into shelter. Like if you think about here in Philadelphia, for instance, that you, what you need to come into shelter. Well, you got to make sure that one, similar to what Chris was talking about, if you, if you need to, if you have syringes on you, for instance, you can't have that. Um, you, you need to make sure that you have all of your medication on you. Um, and, uh, but then maybe some of your medication might get in the way or, um, you know, maybe you don't have, uh, historically, in some situations, you may have needed ID. Or um, maybe this one place is full, and then you now need to go someplace else. And you may or may not have um, transportation to get there. Anyway, like, coming back to the, the history on Pathways, when we first started, uh, we were meeting with uh, landlords and explaining this process. And we actually thought that a lot of people would really struggle with it, um, that, the, the idea of a harm reduction based housing program would be something that we'd have to really sell. Uh, but that's not the, that's not the case. Uh, people actually really want to want to work with us. And I think that it's a combo in between uh, the kind of support and services that we've built as an agency and also uh, the relationships that we've developed with our participants. And uh, it's, it's really exciting to do that all within the lens of harm reduction at the same time. So with one other thing that I would note too, in 2016, as we were really starting to see some huge overlap in between individuals that were on the street with uh, both opioid use and homelessness and uh, neighborhoods like Kensington that were coming more and more into the spotlight, uh, the city actually asked us if we could start a specific team that was dedicated to individuals who, um, who used opioids. And uh, we thought that we could use the model specifically to, th to consider that, but then also consider all of the other um, safety-related things and uh, uh, harm reduction approaches that might be slightly different working with uh, folks with uh, severe or serious mental health uh, conditions or even other substance use uh, backgrounds, and, uh, and then 
support them coming into housing and keeping them stable there. Is that Team 7? So that was Team 7, and actually that was where Sarn came it, in, right? My original team was Team 7. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> and the guy in charge of that is the guy named Sean Westfall, who is probably the... Am I correct? Is he still no. running? He, he was <laughs> he, for some time? Or? Sean is not... Sean, Sean may think that he runs the show, but Sean well. is a, a peer specialist. <laughs> Stepping um, out of out of like the sort of Kensington situation for a second. For listeners, can uh, Matt or, or Sarn, can either of you describe like the basic concept of housing first? Like I, I know we've touched on a bunch of it already, but just, just to get like a, a, a clear definition of, of how housing first differs from other housing models out there. So housing first in, in and of itself is um, primarily recognizing that we we should not put any barriers, any uh, kind of invented barriers to a person coming into their own independent uh, uh, living situation. And uh, so not anything like that they must uh, stop using drugs, that they have to take psych meds, that they have to abandon all of their property, anything like that. It also is all about empowering choice as much as possible. So uh, that's, that's Sarn's uh, turtle making, making noise. some noise in the background. But uh, uh, we have, um, we really want them to inform how to best support the participants uh, or it's, it's support their own process in coming into housing. It's not about we tell them that you must um, fit this specific treatment goal or recovery plan. No, they're going to tell us how we can help uh, work, that, work that out. And, uh, and then it's also really, really focused on community inclusion. So when you've been on, especially when you've been on the street for so long, you... Um, you get cut off, you get isolated. And it's really hard to reestablish in maybe patterns that either you never had or that you, um, you need to rebuild. And so we work with folks and community resources that are not necessarily just based in our organization, but then trying to help find them. What's, what's important to you? What do you want to do? Do you want to work? Do you want to find, um, find family? Is it based on your own um, faith preferences? All of that. Any other thing that you would add in the definition, Sarn? Um, I feel like you pretty much covered that. Um, the, the important thing um, that for myself was, um, like Matt had just said, was the um, no pre-requirements as far as um, as using or not using uh, illicit drugs, um, heroin, um, in my case, um, as far as not having, or as, as far as having the ability to uh, plan out your journey with them. I call it my journey too, but uh, what what your your goals are with once you get housing, um, what what your your mission is um, within that, and and being able to play a big part in that decision making, which isn't. I've found wasn't offered in hardly any other uh, place that I had been to previously or looked into. Um, and also, like, like Matt just said, the, the community um, aspect, outreach um, aspect of it, um, where the, the resources are, if they're not immediately in the systems at Pathways, they will, I found, find you what you need or help you find or guide you in the direction that you needed to go or want to desire to go. 
um, as far as that was concerned. But it was also us coming to you. It wasn't about like you must come to our space and like you have to follow what what you know. Your a plus B right. plus C is equal C. Yeah, right. Precisely. Precisely. Uh-huh. So that made a huge difference as far as that goes. Um, yeah, but I, I mean, for me personally, I think it's a, a, a tremendous uh, program, um, an idea or model, if you want to commit as a model, um, the housing first. So getting down to brass tacks here, you know, um, where, where does your funding come from? And, um, you know, I mean, we know that the federal government, for instance, has been has had some pretty hard lines regarding drug use and subsidized housing. Are you privately funded, city funded, a mixture? No, I mean, there's a, there's a combo. I mean, we, we get it where we can get it. But <laughs> our, our housing is also, it's actually paid for by HUD. And uh, HUD has made some shifts over the last few years where um, housing Housing First is really one of their main priorities, uh, and their more traditional programs have really struggled with that. Uh, you know, I actually hear a lot of times, and when I go talk to other housing providers, they some of them really hate <laughs> Housing First because they feel like, well, how are you? How can you just give somebody housing, or they haven't shown that they're ready to do this thing? Um, but honestly, our our federal government has actually made a shift to prioritize housing first. And one of the big reasons why is because it works. It honestly keeps people in housing beyond even just like the the dignity of it and recognizing that people have every right to to be in their place on their own. But, uh, But it actually also is cheaper on on local systems and, and, and that's true, too. Like, housing a person is way cheaper than keeping someone on the street. The, the amount of times that they're going to be hitting um, emergency departments or getting uh, overlap with the, um, the forensic systems or all of these other areas, um, you know, uh, inpatient treatment or the or all of that is way more expensive than a person being in their own place and uh what we also do make sure that we're doing is that we're wrapping around multidisciplinary supports so that can also include peer support it includes um nurses it includes psychiatrists all of those things when a person is ready and what they want to uh, engage with uh so to get uh, public support for this kind of idea, it's kind of going to require a cultural shift, right? You just talked about how some people feel like you have to earn housing, and that's kind of a an ideal that is embedded in our culture. Like, you say that housing is a right. Well, maybe you can explain why it is a right, because I don't think that really uh, registers with some people. I think that there's this fear that if you just provide a place for people to live, regardless of where they are, whether they're sober or not, that they're just going to use that opportunity to get high all the time and never be a productive member of society. Um, But that's not really true. I think that uh, we can talk about this a little more, about how um, a lot of drug use is a symptom of not having uh, adequate housing, right? Yeah, and, and actually, I mean, I was talking with another participant who was telling me that when when she first came in, she was like, "Oh, great! This is an opportunity where I can I can 
use or I, you know, like I can do my thing. But then when they got in and they were like, wow, this is really great. It's really good to be stable, to, to feel relaxed. There, there were some really amazing and restorative things that happened in that person's life. But it was not because we forced that or that we said that you have to comply to, to X, Y, Z. It was because that was what they wanted to do themselves. Um, so, you know, it's, it's hard to, to say, like, how we can make a complete system change. The thing that I, that I really do like about our kind of housing first, which is actually scattered site uh, independent housing. So we, we work with independent landlords across the whole city. And so there's not one building that is, that's where the folks that are coming out of homelessness are. Um, they have the right to anonymity. You know, Sarn's place is a, a row home in the middle of the block. And uh, he gets to come home and do his thing. And, uh, but it's not that big building where you, you know that they did zoning and they did all of that. It's a way to fight back against kind of that nimbyism. Um, you, you were talking about how like the, the federal government is moving more toward a housing first model. And so there was recently like this exchange between AOC uh, and Ben Carson. So Ben Carson, he's the... the the current um, housing and urban development secretary, and it's worth mentioning this guy has zero background in housing policy. He's like a neurosurgeon or something. But uh, so so AOC mentioned that there's this old uh, quote one strike rule, which is like a 1990s yeah. sort of war on drugs kind of uh, yeah, just like tough on crime kind of liberalism stuff and. And so, you know, like in this exchange with with between AOC and Ben Carson, like she sort of got him to to say like, hey, uh, yeah, you know, that kind of one strike rule actually like, you know, we should be much more flexible around that kind of thing. And like, I just want to know, like, has that like gone anywhere? Like, like if if they signal at the federal level that they're like wanting to be more flexible around those kind of rules, like do like Sarn, do do you notice that? And and Matt, do, do you notice that? Um, I, I, I'm not, I really honestly can't say as far as, uh, no, I haven't taken notice of that. Um, but, uh, what I was going to say though, with the, the housing first and the importance of it, um, it, for, um, like Matt has stated of coming out of homelessness and, and having a place, um, I really feel like where I live now is my home. Um, whereas a couple years ago, I was calling a box my home. Um, and not that I was okay with it, but I'm uh, really proud and glad to come back to this, this apartment that I, I was blessed to get through Pathways. Um, and part of that is because it, it, it isn't like an institutional looking place. It's not, nobody knows on the block unless I tell them. Um, anything about me just as anybody else that's living anywhere. Um, so for me, that makes a, a big difference um, as far as my coming and going. But um, maybe Matt knows more about the... Well, the, you know, I would say um, that it's hard when we come in, even just the idea of defining homelessness, because 
there's the the current definition that we that we use in the United States. It comes primarily from HUD, and so especially if we're talking about chronic homelessness of primarily the people that we we serve through Pathways to Housing. So you have to have been on the street for a year. Um, you have to. It actually has to be documented, and you so you have to have uh, generally things like outreach contacts, and uh, and then if we think about a place like Kensington, for instance, um, until pretty recently, outreach wasn't going into Kensington, and so then to define someone's eligibility for services based on whether or not a person was seeing them, and then writing down that like, yeah, you're actually here. That's pretty messed up. And so the good thing is that the city has shifted and we've seen that they have tried to help bring um, bring a lot more focus. But uh, those at the margins or if you don't want to be seen or you're, you're really trying to avoid it or you're dealing with some significant mental health uh, symptoms or all of that stuff, you're going to fly under the radar. And so there's there, the advocates and the folks who are trying to work for them. They've got to be really, really assertive and, and um, fight to help bring those people into the fold and utilize things like housing first, where uh, it's it's as low barrier as possible. Let's talk about uh, the importance of building community uh, in this kind of situation. I think one of the ways that supervised consumption sites are effective, uh, you know, for listeners, that's a room where you can go and shoot up drugs under the supervision of a of a medical staff, so that if you overdose, you can be revived. The you know that's just like you have the syringe exchange, you get the needles, and then you have a place you can use them, and then you have a place you can kind of hang out, and then you have housing. Like building up this kind of community is really important for people's uh, for people's health. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, like you can't you can't really recover if you're on the street. Like when and when I'm saying recover, like that you can't you can't heal your body if you've if you're uh, I've got a bunch of wounds or you don't have a place to get clean shoes or you can't wash your hands. You can't do any of that stuff. You're right now. It's probably, you know, we just looked, it was like 103 degrees outside. Your, your body's going to fall apart and there's no chance for you to even be okay physically if you don't have a place to, to go inside, close the door, be secure. Um, so we actually just recently signed on on the amicus brief for supporting um, Safe House here in Philadelphia, uh, along with a handful of other uh, homeless services organizations, because, of course, you know, we, we recognize that they save lives. And uh, we're, we're, we're just so tired of seeing our friends and the folks that we serve and connect with dying. And uh, it, it, we, we want to do anything we can to help bring that, bring that forward. I, I was just listening to the Crackdown, which is a, another great podcast out there, and, and they did a episode about housing in Vancouver, and they were talking about how um, people using drugs in single uh, res in SROs and single residency occupancies, basically they were saying like these are you know places where people can be isolated, and it's people and it's places where people can use drugs, overdose, and die, and, and, and it's not in a, in a supervised space. And so in, in that episode, they were talking about sort of like a um, one occupancy where there was like sort of a, a de facto uh, 
person who was like the guy that had naloxone and like everyone knew if uh you know a not to use alone but also in this residency like if someone is overdosing like oh go to this guy's room on the third floor and and he has naloxone like is there anything like that going on um in philly housing um there's not. I mean, one of the things that we, that Sarna and I actually talked about is, you know, we, we want to be thinking through whatever individualized overdose prevention safety plan is going to be most effective for a person when they move into housing. And, uh, and Sarn, for instance, was talking about like, you know, the idea is never use alone. Have somebody around be have naloxone on you. Do you want to say anything else about that? Like when you were considering that? Um, personally, for myself, um, as far as as using a narcotic as an archon, um, and the uh, being safe and safe using. Um, when I was before I decided to uh, start taking uh, or joining the MAT program, um, and I was still. Uh, using drugs at that time um i didn't really think about that aspect of of the 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 drug the using drugs like i didn't care at that point in time about whether i was going to be revived or anybody else was um the more i got into looking into starting the mat program um which by the way um where i go we're prescribed um we can pick up a, a naloxone at, at any time at the pharmacy for free um so at this point in time i think i pretty much have one in pretty much every room in my house just in case i either happen to have somebody that came over that uh, happened to be using or happened to, to overdose um but also to carry with me out in the street um because of um i was telling matt the other day of, about an experience where um a, a law enforcement was actually i overheard them trying to deny somebody um uh narcon so at that point is when i decided to carry it with me all the time um and also as far as using um i encourage anybody um to not be by yourself uh, it just as far and that's something i learned at pathways it was put into my head with the harm reduction it was you know don't be alone um so it's just something i incorporated into my life at this point in time anyway so matt that that brings us to like a kind of difficult subject and that is that you did have some losses mm -hmm. um as this as some of these people that were caught up in the fentanyl crisis began coming in um First, I guess first, how, how how much of a spike was it, and um, what kind of uh, reactions did you have as as an organization to, to that? Yeah, um, I mean, truthfully and and very unfortunately, it's been a thing that we've dealt with really from the beginning. Um, but it's uh, like that. There's there's always risk in uh, especially a person coming from an area where they have folks around and then they move into what potentially could be isolation. Um, and, and also knowing that that's potentially can be a high risk point is, is it can be really scary. Um, we, we did, um, we did see some really frightening spikes at times, uh, where, where we lost, um, some some folks for sure like that they they passed away and it was uh, extremely tragic. It was really hard on the community. It was hard on our staff. Um, it was um, 
you know, it was, it was really difficult. And, uh, and so what we've worked on trying to do is evolve our process. One of the things that we, we actually did is that we brought on um, Sean Westfall, our, our, our harm reduction peer specialist, and one of his main roles is to talk about those um, high-risk points, to in, encourage as much harm reduction-based strategies and advise to all of our staff that everyone is all carrying naloxone. Everyone is all talking about overdose prevention uh, plans and safety plans from that individual perspective, but uh, he's been able to help us kind of push that that um, that perspective forward. He actually came from working from a syringe exchange here in town and and has spent a lot of time with uh, the rest of our uh, the rest of this community. Um, what it's also required is um, figuring out how to help take care of community members who have uh, lost somebody and also our frontline staff who, um, who have been through the continual trauma of, of losing somebody, of coming into an apartment and finding someone. Uh, it's, it is extremely hard in that sense. Someone that, you know, it's different from if you have, uh, a, you know, in an emergency room, you just meet that person there. We have long-term relationships. We've known people for years and, uh, and it's, very, very hard. Starn, when you began living here as a user, did you come and use alone? Um, it, it, thankfully, in this apartment, I haven't used. Um, in my initial apartment, where um, prior to moving here, um, I think I did use um, in recollection once or twice by myself, but I was so petrified by that time um, because it had been put into my head, you know, don't use alone. And, and um, so after those times or in between, which was a short time, but um, after that, I did make sure that there was somebody around um, or I let them know, look, um, I'm going to be using there is Narcon in my cupboard right there if, if something should happen to me um, or to them. So... Yeah, it, it's definitely something that's in, in my head right at all times, actually. I think one of the other things, too, though, is, uh, you know, I, I had someone once talk to me about, um, you know, I'm, I'm struggling with this idea a little bit of, like, housing first because, um, you know, I'm, I'm watching people that I care about a lot going into housing and then this, is, this happens to them. And... Uh, I think a little bit of their premise was should we should we be putting in them into the housing by themselves? Should they go in um, and uh, or is it better for them to stay in shelter or is it better for them to stay on the street? And uh, my my reaction is uh, you know people have body bodily autonomy. You have a right to your own self and. Uh, and that's also one of the things that we're providing. We're giving you the opportunity um, with housing to, um, to, to take whatever, whatever step, whatever uh, space is right for you. Very, very sadly and tragically, there are times when, um, unfortunately, because of the supply of drugs that, that are out there, um, people have lost their lives uh, in the midst of that. But it's also, um, they wanted to be off the street. They wanted to have their own space. They did not, um, they weren't 
in an alley somewhere when that happened. Um, you know, I actually had a, a conversation with a woman once who um, she was really struggling um, with, it was kind of end of life for her. She, we were considering palliative care and um, she was uh, having a hard time going into a hospice. She was at the hospital and she didn't want to go there because she was like, I don't want to die homeless. And I said, you know, we're going to hold on to your apartment. We'll, we'll, you will not die homeless. You will be a person who has your own place. And it was after that that she then agreed to, um, you know, peacefully go into a space where she could die with dignity. And that's another thing that we can also support. We're going to fight like hell to keep um, people alive. But we also want to recognize people's own uh, rights and, and choices and dignity. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that's like so amazing that there is groups like Pathways out there that that isn't putting strings onto housing is is like it just sounds like like Troy was mentioning a minute ago, like, like housing is a right, just like how, you know, I think for everyone here, or maybe those listening, like healthcare is also a right, like, like access to food is a right. And like all of these things are somehow being, being twisted as entitlements and, and privileges and bound up in like our, uh, sort of welfare system and and it's just like at what point did we you know did all these things become uh commodities and and part of transactions and it's just like uh yeah it's just like so amazing to hear that um like you're all in Saren's apartment hanging out right now like like that is just how it should be so, uh, in the context of what you were saying, first off, Matt, I, I know that, um, like, I'm thinking of one of your participants that was in jail for several months, and you maintained an apartment for her, you know, and, and um, she was able to come out and return, and I think that's, that's great. Um, uh, and in the broader context of some of the social services, the wraparound services that, that encompass this program... Um, what was that process like for you? You know, um, you, you come in as a, as a drug user and then what happens? You start gaining confidence or, yeah, I mean. It, it was a, a, a interesting process for me um, on a personal level. Um, uh, while I was homeless for the longest time, I did want to stop using. However, being in the situation of being in the street for almost three years, I didn't feel that I wanted to exist in any other way than finding a way to numb what was going on around me. Um, so I continued to use. Um, when I got housing through Pathways, that's when it really started to click for me. And that's where, you know, the interesting thing about Housing First for me comes into play was not having that stipulation. I found for myself that once I realized that I had this apartment and this security, I was then able to start that process of that I wanted to of, of no longer using. Um, so I started um, a suboxone program, um, and for me, that that has just been life changing. But I really do believe, had I not gotten gotten into pathways, that I probably wouldn't have gone that route, um, just because of the lack of of security and support. Um, 
So where the the program that I attend, um, it, it, it kind of works in the same way that um, the the group leaders and peer uh, specialists and doctors all work with us to make a, a plan for what we want to do as far as um, our stopping the use of drugs. Uh, in my case, it was heroin on Suboxone. Um, so um, it's been, uh, it, it's an ongoing thing. I've been there a little over, almost coming up on two years, I believe. Um, and it's been, it's been just amazing, but it's also because of that, that support and that from both pathways and my program, um, they kind of overlap. And you were with, um, you You had actually done a, a methadone program before, and really kind of the parameters and the heavy, like, authoritarian perspective of that was, was hard, right? It, it, that was difficult for me. Um, I was on a, a methadone program for almost seven years, um, and like I was saying to, to Matt the other day, I continually used, partly because I don't believe it was really what I wanted to do at that time. But um, it, it, it just didn't click with me. Whereas in this, this program that I'm in now has been working um, for me. Um, and it's, uh, it, it's been life-changing. And, and, um, but once again, to me, it goes back to the, the whole housing first part, though. Had I not had housing, it wouldn't have, I don't believe it would have happened. And it, it did. And I would note too, like for us, um, it is where we by no means don't push any particular like this. It must be this or that. Like for some people, it's um, just strictly from a, working from a harm reduction perspective. We have to think about this in an inclusive uh, umbrella. It's managed use. Other people, it's um, uh, methadone maintenance. Uh, other folks, I have actually started some sublocate. It's uh, suboxone. It's vivitrol. It's whatever is right for them. And then we help support them in um, uh, other services. Additionally, it's also a lot of times we have some amazing nurses that are extremely assertive uh, getting out in the community and targeting folks doing uh, some incredible like street-based wound care and uh, uh, you know following up with people, chasing them down wherever, wherever they're at and uh, fighting tooth and nail with uh, doctors in hospitals and ensuring that they, uh, they're not going to stigmatize our people or they're not going to withhold um, you know uh, pain relief care just because they they see them as a you know as they're think that they're seeking meds or something it's also worth noting that not all of your participants are uh, drug users absolutely yeah completely um, what's the ratio um, I mean so on so we have these two clinical teams that it's about a hundred and sixty individuals that are uh, that in order to be on them they have to have um, opioid use but we, the rest of the agency is a combo of, it could be other substances, but it also could be uh, individuals with schizophrenia, or it could be major depression, it could be bipolar, um, any, anything that, a lot of times it's, uh, you know, it, we work with the folks that most other agencies either don't, uh, either that they've, they've kicked them out because they really they throw their hands up and they don't know what to do with them, or um, or they or, or they haven't figured out a way to include them. So let's talk about the broader context here and what the future is for this kind of model of housing. Is it spreading? Is it still really controversial? What's what's coming up? 
Um, I think in a lot of ways it still is controversial um, in some places. Uh, I, I presented to a handful of shelter providers and other people who were more traditional, and they kind of had the perspective that housing first is housing only. That's not the case. It, it can never just be this idea of we, we just shove a person in an apartment, wish them well, maybe come check on them in a few months and like hope that everything is good. Um, it really is about helping to find out how to best support them. Is there any other points that, 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 we, that we missed? Uh, I'd like to ask just one about the end game in terms of the uh, like client. What is the is there an end game for clients? I mean, uh, is this in, in indefinitely Sarn's apartment? Um, uh, what happens if he becomes employed? Um, you know, like mm -hmm. yeah, it's a great question. I mean, um, so this is permanent support supportive housing. So uh, we're we're there for people as long as they want to be in the program. Uh, you know, we started almost 11 years ago and I was just talking with somebody who came in with us back in 2008 and uh, she's she's still in her place and and she wants to stay in that place it's been really helpful for her to have the support but she also there's some ways where she's a lot more independent and uh, but then also for Sarn or anyone else like if there's a point when they they don't want our support anymore by all means too we can back off or we can help them connect up to other services. We had um, someone more recently who was telling them, uh, telling us that they wanted to reconnect with their uh, their kid, get custody back, and because we serve single adults, they, that person couldn't. Uh, was not in our program anymore, but we helped them connect up into uh, getting their own independent housing and reuniting with their child. And uh, um, so, really, it is about that person dictating their their what what's best for them. Would you like to give a shout out to any other organizations that are working across the country that either serve um, maybe married folks or people with, you know, that that are models that you find um, replicable and worthy of? Um, yeah, so like we're actually an affiliated agency of a, a couple other pathways to housings. There's one in Vermont and there's one in D.C. Um, there's the um, DESC in Seattle, they're doing some amazing work that's a combination of both scattered site and congregate housing. Um, they're, they're really, really uh, inspiring in the, in the scope and the scale of what they're doing. And uh, there's, it, it's really, really cool to see the, the adoption of housing first and uh, advocates fighting for it hard because it's an intuitive model. And uh, while we focus on individuals, there are other great programs that are out there too to help make sure that we're including um, other other folks too. Yeah, this is amazing. I mean, I really hope that, like obviously Housing First isn't, isn't like a brand new thing or something, but it still seems like there's there's a long way to go in, in, uh, in replicating it and scaling it up. So... Uh, yeah, look out. I I think that this is definitely going to be growing. Thanks so much for coming on the program and uh, having this conversation with us. Yeah, thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Sarn, for hosting us. Thanks so much for, for sharing your story with us. That uh, really means a lot. You're welcome. Thank you. Hey, this is Aaron Ferguson, Narcotica co-producer. Thanks for listening to the show. 
Narcotica is an independent production by Troy Farah, Christopher Moraff, and Zachary Siegel. Our co-producer is myself, Aaron Ferguson, and I also make the opening music. Our theme music is by Glassboy. You can follow Narcotica on Twitter at Narcocast or Narcocast.com. If you liked what you heard and want to help us stay independent and ad-free, join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash narcotica. Got an idea for a show or just want to tell us something you think will blow our minds? We look forward to hearing from you. Shoot it on over to tips at narcocast.com. Don't forget to tell your friends about us. You can find us on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and other places. That's all for this episode. Join us next time on Narcotica. Thank you.